Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Our guest today is Dan Bartlett, who is the Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs at Walmart. At Walmart, Dan oversees government affairs, corporate communications, philanthropy, and corporate sustainability, among other responsibilities. Dan has the distinction of being the longest serving staffer to President Bush. Dan began his time with President Bush right after college in the mid-90s and stayed with him until 2007. At the time Dan left the White House, he was acting as President Bush's senior counselor. Dan has a lot of great advice for careers in and out of government. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Dan, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. This is a, a road game for you here in uh, our offices in Washington, but I'm glad we were able to grab a few minutes of your time while you're in town. So thank you. No, it's you. great. And it's, uh, it's great that this is a road game. I, I, uh, well, I have a fond memory of my time in Washington. In many ways, it looks better in the rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start at the beginning. Um, you know, you're a Texan through and through, grew up college but you weren't born in texas you sort of found your way to texas describe a little bit it's usually you know, native texans who point that out to me that it's not official um that is true I, my parents moved from uh, i was born in waukegan illinois uh my grandfather had started a a, a bank there uh, called first midwest bank it's still in existence today uh, but my parents my dad decided to pursue uh work in texas and probably want to get away from the, the, sh the long shadow of my mom's family. And uh, we moved to Dallas when I was, like I said, about six months old. Oh, wow. And then by the time I was going into second grade, we moved to Rockwall, Texas, which is a small, was a small rural town outside of, in about 45 minutes east of Dallas, uh, which now is just kind of a, bed mm -hmm. a bedroom community. And, and what would your parents say? What your, would your dad do? My dad do? was in sales. So, and, and ironically, he reminded me when I ultimately took the job at Walmart that he had pitched Walmart back in the late 70s and was shot down. Uh, but he sold a lot of supplies to uh, to restaurant groups and things like that, like fixtures, things like that, brass, all kinds of different. So he was in all, his whole career was in various forms of sales. And then my mom ran a school in South Dallas for gifted and privileged underserved children. So uh, um, lived there uh, through high school and like I said, then went yeah. to the University of Texas and lived there through that before I Do you have any siblings? Politics. I'm the youngest of four, uh, so I have the classic parents didn't think they could have kids, so my oldest brother and sister were adopted, and then as soon as they adopted kids, they had two more, and my brother and I were what they call Irish twins. <laughs> we're 10 months apart in age, so there's four of us. We're only six years apart, all four of us, so um, my oldest sister, uh, they all live in, they all still reside in Texas, uh, but I have a sister and two brothers. So before you went to UT, growing up, summers as a kid, what was your first job when you were a kid? did all kinds of different jobs. I was kind of a, uh, I was the chapter president of the Future Farmers of America. Were you really? Oh, yeah. So I raised <laughs> steers. I worked at a feed store. So I uh, worked at an ice house, uh, literally bagging ice. It was me and 17, uh, I think, legal Hondurans who 
gave me my first uh, lessons in, in Spanish because uh, I had to figure out what they were saying about me. Uh, but that was one of my, summer, my first summer jobs. Uh, but then, like I said, worked on and off, uh, mowing, you know, in the classic things, oh, yeah, mowing yeah. yards, all those different things. But uh, in my later in high school, I was running a, uh, a feed store, basically. For, oh, really? Uh, yeah, and the, the owner of the feed store was a big uh, cutting horse guy, so he, you know, I'd help him as well. My parents were divorced at the time, so my mom was working a lot at the time, and my dad didn't live in Rockwall, so we were kind of left our own devices a bit in the summers and those things and had to get jobs and do that. And so that was, uh, but I was really in my kind of rural phase of life back then. I was the, the stereotypical Texan of uh, boots and had my first car with a truck, the whole thing. So then you, you went to UT, yep. graduated. Uh, what was your first job after college? So I'm one of those, um, I think I was the longest continuous serving staffer to President Bush. So I was still in college, and uh, this would have been 1991, and I didn't want to go back to Rockwell. I wanted to stay in Austin for this summer, and so my mom was like, you have to get a job, and I ended up getting a job at the Texas legislature. The legislature was in a special session. Texas was debating whether they're going to have a Texas, the lottery or not, I remember. And I'll never forget because, um, and I really wasn't, I didn't really have the political bug growing up. I, a friend of mine's dad was the county judge, and I worked on his campaign a little bit. And one of my other best friends, uh, uncle was the state senator, who he's the one who got, helped get me the job as an intern or clerk, you know, in the Senate um, that summer of 1991. And I'll never forget because the special guest speaker on the floor of the Senate that year was a, a young governor from Arkansas named Bill Clinton, who was doing his kind of introductory laps around whether he was going to run for president at the time. And really kind of started to catch the bug in politics then. And as I was finishing school, I maintained my job there to a certain extent, but a buddy of mine who was from Haskell, Texas, which is where, uh, just down the street from where Rick Perry was from. Rick Perry at the time was a Democrat, but was uh, had switched parties, was going to be running for uh, land commissioner. Um, he went... So he knew a guy named, you may recall, a guy named Carl Rove. <laughs> and Carl Rove was a consultant. I had no idea who Carl was. Right. All I knew was my buddy went to go work for him, and he was paying more over there. I was making at the legislature, and he said, you'll enjoy this. I'll never forget, didn't know who he was, but the first week, there one of the third or fourth times I answered the phone, it was George H.W. Bush calling. So I was like, this guy must be pretty important. Uh, <laughs> so, irony. So, you know, I, so working for Carl, I, you know, we were working on a lot you of. You were still in college. Yeah, I was finishing school and literally was working on a bunch of different state senate races, some statewide races, and then a little bit, like I said, he, his main primary world was doing direct mail, political direct mail and those things. And we had a lot of clients and we were focused on that. And I was doing a lot of the research and things that would go into the direct mail pieces we were doing. But that quickly, um, I got the bug. I, I said, I want to kind of pursue this a little bit. And he said, you need on hand, you need campaign experience. And at the time, Kay Bailey Hutchison was about to run as, on the special election for Senate. And the safe route would have been to go work for her because she was going to be a shoe in to win for the most, for all intents and purposes. But during this process, I uh, got to meet George W. Bush. And he said, you know, he's going to be running for governor. It was a fool's errand in many bodies, in a lot of people's estimation, because of the popularity of Ann Richards at the time. But I met him, and like most people, I mean, you just quickly right. gravitate to him because he was such a normal person, et cetera. 
So I was, I went on the campaign staff in October of 1993. Israel Hernandez had been hired as the travel aide up in Dallas. So Bush was living in Dallas, but we were down in Austin. And this office, the campaign started in Carl Rove's office. So that was where it all began, as they said, that's where it all started. And then you stayed through the then governor's term. And what were some of your yeah, so roles I was within the, the, within um, the I was more on the policy side. So I, um, where I was assistant policy director, so I kind of helped all the various expertise, you know, the, the kind of disciplines of criminal justice, education, welfare. My job was really as the keeper of the Bush record and what he had campaign promises he made, and I would help make sure that we were implementing those things. And uh, we did a revamp of the department, Texas Department of Commerce, that I helped lead. Uh, so I was kind of a jack of all mm -hmm. trades in the in the in the in the policy shop in the governor's office. Then I, I went over to the re-election campaign, and re-election campaign, while it was pretty much a shoe in he was a widely popular governor, Gary Morrow ran against us, it really started to be a scene setter for the speculated presidential run, and so national Democrats were spending more time focused on, on Governor Bush. They were using Gary Morrow, the candidate, as kind of a test uh, of the type of attacks. And so I was issues director on the reelection campaign. Um, and then I did not go back in, you know, into the governor's office. I stayed, uh, went back to go work in Carl's office and we started to work on the exploratory committee right. for president and that whole process that was underway where people were quote unquote recruiting him to run for president. So we do you, do you remember the day when the president or then governor came in and said, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run for president. We're doing it. Was there a, a moment where that decision you know, happened? It was interesting. It, sort of it, was kind of an it was kind of an organic thing. Yeah. I don't remember like a dramatic moment where he sat everybody down. And, you know, I was a pretty young buck then, to say right. the least. So I, I wasn't by any stretch uh, in the inner circle. I do get asked a lot about it. I mean, I was afforded jobs at an age I really didn't deserve, including communications director in the White House and those things. And, and I often get asked, how did you how did you strike up this relationship with uh, with the president? Ironically, one of the ways that happened was, as I was mentioned to you, is the president were, lived in Dallas, and I was kind of an early riser, and I always, I oftentimes would get to the campaign down in Austin earlier than anybody else. I'd literally be the first person there. And I noticed that the phone would start ringing around into like the campaign manager's, Joe Allball's office and other people's offices, and it'd roll out to the main line, and I'd pick it up, and it was him. And he's like, who's this? I was like, uh, this is Dan Bartley. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm doing the clips right now. I'm trying to get to see what's in the news. Well, tell me about what's going on in the news. And so, and I never really told anybody. And he used, and it came a pattern like two or three times a week. He'd call early in the morning. And it got to the point where he'd be asking me about campaign scuttlebutt, who's, right. date, who's dating who and all this. And I kind of had this unique opportunity. And then I, over time, I became kind of the keeper of, and of his personal records, you know, everybody was attacking him on his business record, his time at the Texas Rangers. And over time, I became kind of the, the Sherpa of all things Bush on the personal side, which then exposed me to a lot of people in his life, his people back in Midland, Texas. Right. When we did our own uh, op research on ourselves and Harriet Myers helped on that, you know, I was spending all kinds of time with uh, Tom Schieffer, who ran the Rangers at the time, uh, investors he had been with. So I got 
a unique insight and access to the Bush world way before I probably deserved or thought I would ever get. And that kind of just, it stuck with me all the way through the White House. You know, you got all the shenanigans about the, his, his guard service and all that. Right. I was probably the one person who had the longest tenure of, of information on all those things and all those people back in, in the different parts of his of his career and childhood. So it was a, a unique, almost random set of occurrences that got me in that position. And then, of course, the president wins yeah. and everyone moves from Texas to Washington. Yeah. And so it changed. So in the presidential campaign, my role started to shift. I kind of I my job started to morph from I had one foot in the policy shop and one foot in the communication shop. And I was kind of the conduit between the two. And I ultimately became kind of the um, in charge of rapid response. So anything Al Gore said about Bush, I was kind of in charge of organizing our response to that. So I started working, obviously, a lot with the policy folks. And I came out of the world of politics with Carl, but then was really getting exposed and working with Karen Hughes. And so Karen asked me to be her deputy as we all moved up to Washington after the recount and those. And that's when I joined more formally the, the communications staff as her deputy. And then uh, for reasons for her family and those things, you know, pretty quickly on, she um, decided to move back to Texas and it afforded me an opportunity I never thought I would get. Yeah, I remember. So I, I joined the White House in the later years, um, around the time you were starting to think about your transition out. But when I started, I'll never forget this. We were in all these different policy meetings and people kept saying, OK, before we do anything, we have to talk to Dan. And I'm like, who is this Dan guy? Like, I, at that time, I didn't know the dynamics. I, it was like my first week, and I quickly figured it out. So by the end, when you left, you had this role of counselor to the president, which was a very wide-ranging portfolio of issues. Describe a little bit sort of what you were focused on and, and what that job entailed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, um, it was. It was interesting. It's like any time you get the, the counselor role, and it, it gets – it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. The funniest way it got interpreted was we were literally in, we were at a state lunch in Guatemala. And usually when you're having these lunches, they put the presidents at one head table, but then they put other members of the traveling party at other tables. And so I'm sitting at this table and to the right of me is the Supreme Court Justice of the Guatemalan Supreme Court, the Attorney General's to my left. And, that's, and I'm getting hammered on the Geneva <laughs> Conventions and on Gitmo Bay, all these different things. And it finally dawned on me, I was like, they think I'm the president's lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> I was like, I was like, no, no, no. I was like, conciliage. I'm more of a consult, you know. And so they then they didn't talk to me for the rest of the lunch, which is great. <laughs> but um, so my job was, you know, I still my responsibilities were still all things communications and message and those things. And what was very understanding to the policy councils was that now I used to always say is to somebody like Keith Hennessy or others like that, I would say doesn't matter how perfect a policy is in a vacuum. What it matters is can it stand the scrutiny of the public? And so having myself and my team intimately involved throughout the process, so the end product was one that was not only sound policy, but obviously could, could withstand the pressure of the public, was my role was to kind of be that connective tissue. Also, I think I because I had spent so much time working for the president going so far back, I, I had really good instincts about how he would react to things, not only from a policy perspective, but just in general. Right. So I became as would Carl, as was Carl and others, a real sounding board for people. I would be, I was often used as a, as a Guinea pig right. 
on things and, and pressure test things and give advice about how to frame uh, uh, arguments to the president and things like that, having worked for him so, for so long. So it was, we were, those of us who had been with him a long time, we were oftentimes the connective tissue to just the way that the West Wing would work. You obviously were with the president in some uh, amazing situations. Uh, is there a particular moment that really sticks out as your most memorable scene with the president or, or, or something that? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to pick any other than on 9-11 and being in the traveling party and on Air Force One that day when, you know, history changed our country. And um, it is in many respects, I can't believe it's been as long as it has been, but then it's like it happened yesterday and the minutes that went by and the, the decisions that were made. And what's really, it's hard to describe to people is the hardest thing to do in, in, in a period like that is how do you divorce the personal from the professional? It's hard not to think about our spouses and our family back in Washington or literally being, you know, there was a lot of that fog of war going on at one point they thought that Air Force One was a target. I remember the president being very preoccupied early on about the safety of his parents and his wife and his girls. And once he knew that they were safe, you know, you could see his mind clear, you know, clear up a bit as far as being able to focus. And there was this kind of, this notion of that there was kind of the, the calm in the eye of a storm and there was hysteria going on on the plane. But anytime you went into the president's office and there it was eerily calm as he was processing and thinking through the next steps. I will never forget when Flight 93 went down and we learned that Ted Olson's wife was on that flight. So that was somebody that Harriet Myers was close to. She was on the plane with us. And so you have these, this historic thing going on and then to have something like that happen. And then on top of all of that, and it's a funny story that it's only funny in the, in hindsight, but, uh, Many of the Washington alum or Bush, Whale, Bush uh, Cheney alumni will remember uh, Colonel Tubb, Dick Tubb, who was our, the White House doc. And um, not knowing what was going to happen, he gave the president and all of us um, pills to take because he didn't know if there was going to be a chemical or biological attack, so they wanted to be preemptive in this. And I'll never forget, we're sitting around the conference table of Air Force One working on his room. We were flying back to Washington, working on what the president was going to say from the Oval Office that night. So there's a sleeve of pills. So I take the sleeve of pills. Go to, and I kind of thought to me. I looked around and I said, I didn't really see anybody else take the sleeve of pills. And so I look at the thing and it says, take one pill each day for the next seven days. And I just taken all of them. So <laughs> I'm literally sitting there saying, I think I just killed myself. <laughs> And so I like calmly point and I go and and those who know Tubby, we called him Tubby, know that he was kind of a, a prankster. Obviously not on this day. So I go into the, the the medical unit's own cabin there on Air Force One. I'm like, hey, Tubby. I was like, I took all the pills. And he's like, stop joking, Bart. This is, you know, like, this is real. And I'm like, no, I took all the pills. And he's like, why? And I'm like, I, I don't know why. Those get beyond at me being stupid. He's like, I'm. I've never heard that, you know, I think you'll be fine. It turned out it was Cipro, but I didn't at the time, you know, this was before Cipro became a common household right. name. And so I go back and I sit down and at this point I'm like inventing yeah, symptoms. Um, it's like, I'm dying. And they're like, where is he? And he hasn't showed up. I go back in there and they literally have like the big red medical book out. They're on the phone with the CDC. 
And ultimately, he like gives me a bottle of Pepto Bismol, and I'm like, "This is supposed to be the best doctor in the world." And I'm like, "He's like, take this. I think you'll be all right." I said, "What do you mean? You should be pumping my stomach and all this." <laughs> so I, all I could think about is like, I was going to be that in other news today, senior staff from Air Force One, you know, off some. And stuff. that would have spun a whole nother story. Oh <laughs> gosh. So I mean, th- so there were moments like that. Right. Also, I'm sitting there thinking, I was like, "Did I really oh, just that's do good this now?" So, and obviously you were around some incredible situations. You know, we just had recently President Trump uh, going to Buckingham Palace. I was part of the president's travel party to, to the state dinner. The, the, the great part about that was that was President Bush always knew how, he never took himself too seriously, and we'd always have lighthearted moments. I'll never forget, what he, I was literally going to meet, I mean, to do the curtsy, they said the Honorable Daniel J. Bartlett to the Queen, and he leans over and says, well, he's not that honorable. And she thought, I think she literally thought there was like a security breach or something. I'm like, and there was always like those moments where there was, I went to kiss the papal ring of Pope John Bowen, and he leans and says, he may need a couple extra Hail Marys there. And so there were always these moments that kept it fun and light, right. which, was, which was great. But eventually you decided to leave. Yeah, so um, I was a glutton for punishment. I got married during the presidential campaign in 2000. We had our twin boys, Jake and Sutton, during the re-election campaign in 04. And then my third uh, boy, Whit Bartlett, came literally the day after the 2007 State of the Union address, which I was pretty much quarterbacking, so I was pretty busy during that time. And so I left in July of 07. The irony being that the boss was like, oh, gosh, nobody will care about us as a lame duck. You can make it through this, and nothing's going to happen in the last year. And, of course, the financial crisis and everybody was working, as you know, was working right up to the end. So it was a little bit better being on the outside. Um, Moved back to Austin. I joined a consulting firm called Public Strategies that uh, helps companies manage their reputation. Became CEO of that company which merged with another, it was a WPP company that had merged with Hill and Knowlton, and I became the U.S. CEO of that combined group. Um, did that for four or five years, but the grind of consulting and being on the road, I was living in Austin, which was great to be back in Austin. Had a, um, that elusive search for a girl. We had another boy. Uh, so uh, when came in 2009, and so, you know, have four boys, being on the road as much as I was, I've started to kind of think that I need to do something different. And out of the blue, I literally had that conversation with my wife on a Friday evening after I'd been on the road all week. Monday, a call comes, and it's Walmart asking if I would come talk to them. Were they a client? No. In fact, one of my largest clients at the time was Target, and so they kind of freaked out about it. But um, they had, ironically, they had approached me while I was still in the White House six years earlier, like in 2006, I wasn't in a position to leave then. And they said, look, you're the only person who was on our original list who's now on the list in, um, the, that many years later. And I wasn't, I, I, I was driving home from my office in Austin. I was like, how am I even gonna get Arkansas out of my mouth to even like consider that? I got my wife back to Texas. So, but we both said, as they always say, go listen. Right. And you know, I immediately, I had perceptions. I grew up in a rural part of Texas. I knew Walmart very well. I'm now advising one of their, a big competitor of theirs. I, I had misconceived notions about who they were as a company. And when I got to meet then the CEO, Mike Duke, and the leadership team there and, and understand the deep sense of, of humility that really permeates throughout that company and the culture, on top of it being the largest company in the world that has a platform to really, at, at scale, to do something 
uniquely different from the corporate world was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And so we packed up and I remember telling How'd that go over. Oh gosh. I remember telling my boys, I, mean, I could have told them we we're moving to Saudi Arabia. They had no idea where Arkansas was. They were young at the time. They're 15 now. So they were like nine at the time. And so we had to do a lot of negotiations about swimming pools and this and that. The funniest was my third child, Wit, who's now 12. He was six or seven at the time. And he, you know, he has older twin brothers. One of them were really excited. The other one was not excited about it at all. I remember him. He was um, some other Bush alumni. Kevin and Kathy Martin are actually my twins, godparents. And they and Kevin had indoctrinated uh, one of my twins as a uh, diehard Tar Heel, North Carolina. So all he asked was, is this Arkansas place closer to North Carolina and Tar Heel? I was like, yeah. So he's like, oh, all right, I think I can do it. My other child, he's like, Dad, you know, I think I can do this. Can I just ask you one question? I was like, yeah. He's like, why couldn't you just work at the Walmart in Austin? And I was like, good question. I was like, well, and so I had to try to explain to a six-year-old about the corporate head offices versus a store because he's like, there's plenty of stores here. Why couldn't you just work there? So it's it's never easy for folks to transition out of government. I mean, first, there's what you see and what you're part of in government and sort of getting used to life on the outside. But it can also be difficult to line up that first opportunity when you leave. As you talk to people who are leaving government, you know, what advice do you give people on how to position themselves when they leave? Because that skill set doesn't off, always translate. Yeah. People in the private sector don't always understand what a government skill set is. Yeah, I think that's changing, but there's no doubt about it. And when I looked at it, and everybody tells you, like, if you're leaving the White House or these big jobs, they're like, we only leave once. Don't screw it up. I mean, this is your opportunity to do anything. Anybody will give you a shot because of where you're coming from. And I I remember, so should I go to Wall Street? Should I do this? And some of my colleagues, former colleagues, have been really successful hanging their own shingle, like Ari Fleischer. I knew I didn't want to do a solo act. I knew that I liked from my environment of growing up in campaigns and doing that. I liked being on a team. And then I was worried about one of the great things about those jobs in the White House is the variety of issues you get to get. And so then I was worried, man, if I went to go work for one company and woke up every day worried about selling one widget or whatever it was, that concerned me. And that's why I gravitated towards consulting because it exposed me to a lot of different industries, a lot of different crises and problems that my skill set matched pretty quickly. And... And I remember also, though, um, I had an interesting, you know, you, you get advice from people. And I, I remember meeting with Hank Paulson and Hank, because I was like, well, should I go do the Wall Street thing? And he's like, you know, you're the years where you kind of give your life up and you work that job 24-7. He's like, you've done that already. He's like, if you go to Wall Street, you may have to do that all over again. And are you, you got young kids. He's like, yeah, he was like. And, you know, getting out of Washington might be the best thing for you. I mean, here you're just another fish in this big pond. If you leave, you could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond, which was an interesting way of looking at it. And then I had the most interesting was <laughs> I had lunch with Bob Woodward. I dealt with Woodward a lot with how many books he wrote about Bush and all that. And I and I said, he said, you know, um, and this is Mr. Washington himself. He goes, after living here for as long as I have, it kind of takes a part of your soul. Oh. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's like a, depressing. So I'm like, I'm out of here. Uh, so the decision to leave and all that was was interesting and easy. What What's fascinating about Walmart, Walmart is like my second stint in government. I mean, we have 2.3 million employees. We're in 28 countries. The scale of it is comparable. And it runs, and, and my, my boss will probably hate me to say this, but it's very much like the Pentagon, very hierarchical. 
they had the services. So we have like in the it's hierarchical and it can be two stovepiped. Large organizations can be risk averse. These are things we're working on as a company because we're obviously being disrupted in a major way and in the retail industry. And how do we become more agile? How do we change the way we work? How do we become more nimble? How do you take risks that are smart risks? All these things are things we've worked on as a leadership team now in the last in the six years I've been there. So it has been a, a and then on top of that, the ability to engage in public policy on so many different issues from workforce development and the future of automation to and the opportunity we're providing. We're, we're running one of the largest private sector training initiatives. We trained over 400,000 people last year. Uh, we're offering college educate. We have 7,000 employees on our way to 60,000 employees that are getting college education for a dollar a day. Obviously, the trade issues with China. Uh, we have a major stake in uh, in India now, and so the dynamics of the, the U.S.-China relationship, the U.S.-India relationship, the U.S.-Mexico relationship, all these different things, it's drawing on all the experiences I had in government, both from a policy standpoint and obviously from a communication standpoint. And so I've been lucky. It's been a—and then the culture of the company— is really interesting in the sense that it is the closest I have found to be the culture I grew up working for George W. Bush. And what I mean by that is that well, I always talk about what, what made George W. Bush tick. And I always said the three F's in his life, faith, family, and friends. And that was where he's the source of his energy, the source of his, um, his ability to do the job. And, and, and I also said about the presidency um, it's not a character-building exercise. The presidency is a character-revealing exercise. And at Walmart, I see a lot of the similar culture that was in Sam Walton and then has been carried on in the leaders that are running the company today. And it's the smallest, biggest company I ever worked for. And, and the ability to move, uh, to do things at scale that only somebody like Walmart can do while at the same time learn an incredible amount about business and about the transformation of a business, a legacy business like, like Walmart, who's being the competitors and everything from Amazon to Alibaba to Tencent. It's, it's been a fascinating ride. And this week makes six years for me there, which has gone by uh, fairly fast. How has it evolved over six years? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I'm increasingly the the second term of my Bush White House was kind of the count. I got the title of counselor, and and I do have kind of a, a similar relationship with our current CEO Doug McMillan, and and allows for me to get involved in in things that are outside of my core remit. Um, we don't have a, a chief of staff role or anything like that, but we but I I get pulled into a lot of different projects, a lot of different aspects of the business. I'm now, to tell you how much change Walmart's going through, I'm six years in, I'm the longest tenured member of our executive management team, oh, wow. outside of Doug, our, yeah. our CEO. So um, that just shows that how much churn has gone on as we sh- were shaping the company for the future. And it's weird to think that I'm one of the grizzled vets on the, on the management team, but it's, it's been fascinating. So what are you spending your time on now? I mean, you've mentioned the broad mandate you have. Yeah. Uh, everything from communications, philanthropy, policy, international. What, Sort of day to day, what's your your focus these days? That takes up a, a good a good chunk of it, um, as well as I get pulled into a lot of the M and A business development parts of as we're either trying to build capabilities or acquire capabilities. 
I get pulled into quite a bit of that. We, a huge change management exercise going on internally for the company as we're going through this transition. So I'm helping a lot on that front. And then I was given a pretty exciting project. We're building a 2 million plus square foot new home office, corporate campus in Bentonville. And for whatever reason, I got I drew the short straw. So I'm the executive sponsor of this construction project of a new uh, corporate campus that'll house, you know, roughly 15,000 people. And so going through the process of onboarding architects and contractors and building out a team to, to uh, you know, we didn't do the what I would call the 50 state shakedown for taxpayer dollars like some others have done uh, for, uh, to bid out the home office. We, we decided to do it uh, at, where our home is in, in Bentonville, Arkansas. But um, the ability to be able to put a, a, a that'll be a real legacy for this leadership team to build something that will, we hope will stand the test of time. And I'm sure when they actually do the grand opening, they'll look back and say, who was the guy who we had to fire? He started, <laughs> Oh, that was Bartlett. Should we invite him back to open this thing up? But, uh, so that's, that's been a, a big part of my, my time right now as well. And in preparing for this, I, I noticed you're very active on Twitter and social media and a couple of interesting photos for, for people to check out on your, your Twitter feed. But one that grabbed my interest, just given what's going on with the NBA these days, was that you have a, a picture with LeBron James. Yeah, this was one of the ones where my boys don't get real excited about my job. Yeah. But when I told them I was going to hang out with LeBron for three hours, they got really jealous. And so through our foundation, we're doing some work with LeBron. Uh, with his school there in, in Ohio, and we're going to expand some of our work with him in other parts of the country. So Doug McMillan and myself went up, and we were filming a bunch of stuff up in, in Akron at his school. And so we hung out with him for two or three hours. I mean, he's uh, – in this job, you know, we've been able to been able to um, meet a lot of interesting people that's kind of in, a, in, a, in parallel to some of the unique experiences I had when I worked in the White House. But that one was a cool one, and yeah. uh, he's as he's as cool as everybody, uh, and really smart and sharp businessman. Takes his craft both on the court and off the court really seriously. I was in, I was in, I was incredibly impressed by the total makeup of the guy. He was he's buttoned up in every way. It was really impressive. In this role, the other roles you've had in, in government, you meet a lot of people. And you, you, you must have an incredible network across business, government, philanthropy. Uh, one of the things I've always been interested in, and this has been a recurring theme in some of the discussions we've had on this podcast, is how people sort of manage the network. How do you stay connected with people? Because it's not easy to do. Um, it's not. Do you have a strategy around how you – You, you know, I'm probably one of the worst ones to ask about that because I'm, I'm one of those who get lambasted for not doing a better job of, of keeping up. Um, I really try hard to take any, any interaction with any person I work with in government or corporate um, seriously and, and invest in it in a way that p the other side feels like they're getting something out of it. And you always do it because, you know, when I, left, when I left the government, I was going into consulting. When consulting, you need clients. So I was like, I made my list of like, who are the like, the, who's my Uber list, tier one contacts that I've made, either that I'd served with and whatnot. And, and and I would pursue, you know, and try to set up lunches and do things. I can't tell you, I got more business or at least opportunities for business from people I had very chance encounters with in the government. Somebody come and say, you know what, you don't remember this meeting in the Roosevelt Room where we were talking about this. I worked over at the Department of XYZ, and you were so insightful that but you, I actually you spent time and talked to me about this or this or that. I never forgot the way you treated me in this meeting or how you treated me here. 
And I'll never forget that. I can't tell you how many, and I'm like, wow. And some people you may have even not even recalled having interactions with being, you know, that you had influenced or had a, had a memorable moment with them was really gratifying on the back end. And, and so I've, I've, I've tried to maintain those relationships. I've tried to be a good mentor to people who were, and not only people, frankly, from who I worked with, I've, I've counseled as many people coming out of the Obama administration. I, I, you know, these are unique jobs that we, it's a rare fraternity of people who worked in the West Wing and, and, you know, I gave, you know, become friends with Robert Gibbs, who's now got my job at McDonald's, there's others and, and, and give them that perspective of what is it like to translate from, from government to, to the corporate life, because some don't make the transition very well. And so I've been, I've been lucky in that regard and have tried to pass it on. So I do imagine you get lots of calls from people to, to get advice, whether it was what you did in the government or what you're doing at, at Walmart today. What's the two pieces of advice that you generally give to people when you talk to them about their careers and how they think about their next Most steps? people always underestimate their potential. And I, you know, for one, like I said, I, I started by saying I was afforded jobs in the administration that were probably way outside my, my capabilities or my experience. And it was interesting. Every time I, I got a new job, a new set of responsibilities, President Bush would put me through my paces. Even when I got the counselor role, he's like, your job changed. And I, the scrutiny he put on me, and he would like, almost like, he's like, the game, we've got up the game, you're going to up your game. And so I would, I would go through like a month of like where he was hammering me pretty good. And that happened you know, multiple times through my career with him, but he always, you know, had faith in um, not getting wrapped around the axle of whether I had an Ivy League degree or this or that, that give people a chance, give them room to grow and assume responsibilities. And what I tell people oftentimes is that if you want to get promoted or get a bigger job, start acting like you're doing that job now take on new responsibilities. Don't wait to be asked to do things. And then it makes it easier on a management team to say, well, it makes sense for us to promote this person because he's already, we already see him doing the job. So I oftentimes talk to people about that. And then, um, and then I would also say is that corporate America is, um, needs more people with our kind of background. It is hard to explain to people the uniqueness of the roles we've had and the, We've seen things that other people haven't seen. We've worked at a speed, and that's the thing more than anything else. And that's always a hard thing when people are transitioning back into corporate life from government. Uh, for example, Rachel Brand, who served as the number three of the Justice Department, is now our uh, chief legal counsel at Walmart. Her, she's, she's trying to readjust to it's not a sprint anymore. It's a, it's a marathon at a company, and there's different milestones that are. And so telling people to um, leverage that, that, that ability to multitask and to run out of speed, but also I give advice to pace yourself. This, we're not, there's not a campaign in the fall. There's not an election day. The election days are hard to find, and, and when you work in corporate America, you almost got to create them uh, to help galvanize the team. But think of it more as a, as a marathon than a sprint. So as you look forward, your successful career, what, what's left on, on your to-do list? Do you want to run for office someday? No freaking way uh as i started i mean politics looks a lot better in the rearview mirror i mean i can't 
I was grappling with in the White House, the advent of social media was a blogosphere. I mean, that was our big kind of thing to have to grapple with, to think about what what happens now as we go into this silly season of the 2020 election cycle. There's really none of that that looks exciting to me. I hope uh, I don't. I, it's hard for me to see me doing another corporate job at another company. So probably after my tenure at Walmart do something more entrepreneurial, hopefully get back to Texas, to our roots. I've got, I still got young boys. It's great that I'm, I've got enough work by life balance to it. I can, I can attend lacrosse games and caddy for my son who's into competitive golf. My sons that play golf and, you know, but I think that my next gig will be something far more entrepreneurial and maybe more with social impact. So that's, that's at least the hope if, uh, when my run at Walmart's done. Well, Dan, thank you. I wish you the best, continued success, and uh, thank you for taking time to, to speak with me today. I appreciate it. It's awesome. My pleasure. Take care. This show is produced by Sarah Langauer.